0: Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Tarlok and Waller, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle and Rachel Winter, Senior Investment Manager at Killikin Company. Asia is associated with strong growth and this is often reflected in this region's equity markets. However, this has not been without some volatility along the way. So Taha, how have Asian equities been doing recently?
1: Hi, you know I'll take everyone through back how they've done for the most part of this decade because it really sets the context of how um, you should think about Asia. So, um, between 2014-2015 middle of the road, seven percent. The U.S. was the big story there, but then in twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen, everything changed, and the MSCI Asia Pacific Extra Pan Index uh, rose sixty three percent over those two years. So, you know, these are substantial returns for a short term, short term time, and they were only behind emerging markets. Um, worth bearing in mind, there is a Quite a big crossover between the emerging markets and Asia Pacific region. Now that was um, stellar growth, and going into 2018, everyone was very positive on the area as they were with um, emerging markets in Europe, and everything that had done well over that period. Global growth story, everything was good. Uh, and last year, this very much became unstuck, uh, as I'm sure we are all well aware. Um, it was down nine percent last year, which is not the worst. Um, it was not the worst region, but uh, kind of lost around the same as as the worst regions did. Um, and this year, it's up 3.9%, which is about middle of the pack for the major for the major regions. So, you know, as, as you mentioned in your, your intro, very volatile. Um, but also, there's a lot of reasons as to why this happened. So last year's kind of well, falling off was, uh, as we talked about many times on this podcast and, and wrote about in the magazine, uh, a lot of it is to do with China, trade wars, Chinese growth. Um, a lot of Asian countries are interlinked with China. They're, they're either importers or exporters of Chinese products. So there's always a knock-on effect that you have to account for. General global economic growth that slowed down. Well, the fundamentals weren't actually that bad, but the sentiment was it was slowing down quite a lot. Also, Asia, as our emerging markets, very much affected by what's happening in the US in terms of the strength of the dollar and uh, the pace of interest rates and how they're rising. Asia is a very risk-on kind of market, and 2018 was not a risk-on kind of year, so I suppose that's the, the best way to sum up what's been happening there.
0: Okay. Now, when the market falls, um, this obviously also affects the funds that invest in them, but you've been speaking to a manager whose funds didn't bear the full force of Asian equity market falls last year. Who, who is this?
1: So, this is Hugh Young, uh, and... The name might not uh, spring to mind. And the main reason for this is that Hugh Young is head of Asian equities at Aberdeen, uh, Aberdeen Asset Management, and now Aberdeen uh, Standard Investments. Um, so they have a team approach. So he's not named on any funds, uh, but he has very much been at the forefront of um, Aberdeen's Asia equity business uh, for a very, very long time, I think since about 1991.
0: Yeah, hi- highly respected uh, Asian investor. No, absolutely. Yeah. He's been managing
1: yeah. Asian equities um, since 1985. He leads the team on uh, quite popular and well-known trusts such as Aberdeen Asian Income and then Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus, which is their kind of small cap um, Asian vehicle as well. Um, Performance-wise, so the, the Aberdeen Asian team, I suppose they, they generally tilt towards value investing. Um, so recent performance has to be taken with that in account because the 2016-17 uh, figures that I mentioned earlier was very much a growth kind of market. Um, so over three years, the income trust has returned fifty eight percent versus sixty for its benchmark, which is the MSCI Asia Pacific Extra Pan Index, uh, and the Asia Focus Trust has returned forty seven percent versus thirty percent for the small cap equivalent index. Uh, five years, the figures are very different. Um, so the income trust only returned forty five versus seventy two, and the small cap. Uh, 41 versus 38. But as you as you mentioned uh before you asked me this question 2018 is what's uh, important here. Um so the Asian Income Trust only lost 6.2%, which actually is less than the 9% fall in the index. Uh, and similarly with the small cap trust as well, that only lost two point five percent versus fourteen uh, a fourteen percent decline in its index, index. So
0: okay, so good performance from the small companies absolutely trust. Yeah,
1: very very defensive relative performance. Yes, I would add. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it still yeah. lost money as well, mm. bearing in mind, mm.
0: but a lot um, less than the market. No, absolutely, it so yeah. yeah,
1: really is. So yeah. They, and th- and there are reasons for this. Um, they they favour a very specific type of small cap, um, ones that align to kind of the domestic growth story, so they're less impacted by the kind of macro mm. sentiment that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but and the Asian income underperformance can be explained by them. You know, it's an income trust, and it's a value income trust, I suppose, as well. So, doesn't tend it did what well, it didn't invest in the the major growth stock stories that we mm. saw coming out of Asia, things like you know, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba. Things
0: right? Like well, so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The cyclicals. Are, yeah, no. yeah. 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 So they're basic, ba- so basically, quite defensive funds. They kind of like do better and falling markets, lag rising markets type a- of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So with the strategy. You're saying they don't go for, say, for example, big tech stocks. What kind of companies do they go for?
1: So the, they have a, a, a very strict criteria. It's very much um, a combination of, of quality, uh, sh- quality stocks, strong balance sheets. Um, obviously, it, yeah, quality and income in the in the income trust, and then quality conservative in the small cap space. So b- big focus on balance sheets. The companies have little to no debt. The small cap stocks actually, um, Hugh Young was telling me that they like to see no no meaningful debt on the balance sheet they're a bit more lenient for the income stocks um, and they should be aligned to the domestic growth story so by that we're, we're talking at uh, their earnings and revenues growing at a multiple of the economic growth of the the region that they're serving or the country that they're serving uh, and the main thing is they they have to have the right culture so the. the the, the Aberdeen Asian team have a very strict um, business culture requirements. They're you know they looking for strong governance, uh, reliable kind of business strategy, uh, conservative business strategy as well. They don't want people going gung-ho. They, they want people to kind of incrementally increase what they're trying to do in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, I'll give some examples. Um, so in the small-cap trust, you've got um, an Indonesian... A conservative private bank uh, and like things like local supermarket ch- chains elsewhere as well. So these are kind of you know staple businesses, but that can do really well out of the e- the economy growing. Um, so this conservative private bank they've owned uh, for over twenty years. It managed to survive through the Asian financial crisis, which was in nineteen ninety seven, and it kind of came out stronger the other end. Um, and interestingly, in the income front, the equivalent of that is a conservative singaporean bank which actually recently became a major, a major shareholder in the indonesian private bank so you can see how these these strategies are aligned and they they kind of pick the same stocks as well
0: what kind of companies don't they like
1: as i said yeah very much never going to go for the the stocks that are trading on, on 40 times earnings you know you the the bat stocks which is the asian equivalent to the fang stocks in the us which is baidu alibaba tencent taiwan semiconductor um, these these companies have done remarkably well and been big beneficiaries of the the growth the tech growth story and the the global growth story that uh, we saw in 2015 2016 and prior to that as well one thing they don't do so I mentioned that they do like companies that align to the domestic economy but um, what a lot of people tend to do with that is pick the Asian manufacturers because they are kind of leveraging the cheap labor that's available in different regions move things around uh, and always manage to increase their margins Um, Hugh Young doesn't like that he thinks they're very short-term plays. So if you want to really align yourself to a growing economy, you, you do so in more conservative ways like uh, retailers, supermarkets, private banks, local financiers, things like that.
0: I think, as we mentioned, uh, these uh, Aberdeen funds typically lag rising markets, but are fairly defensive and falling markets. So with this in mind, how does Hugh Young think Asian markets will do over the year ahead? And how does he think his funds will perform in them?
1: so he he does think it's going to be a, a volatile market in fact it, he used the word uh, somber chinese economic growth and and just china is the, is always the, going to be the biggest factor in this region as to how it does it does really affect how everyone else does um, so a volatile market um but he he thinks this fund's actually going to do well, so what he said was is that the funds that he runs are or tortoise rather than hair funds, and I think that's, that's a nice analogy. Uh, and he thinks it's going to be the right kind of market. I mean, naturally, he, he would say that as well, though. Um, but I, I, I don't think he would have said that in 2016, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. Um, but, you know, there, there, are, there are some reasons why. So you look at the, the underlying holdings that he has, the Asian small-cap fund is, is only on 11 times earning. You know, there is there is really good value uh, in... In, in its this, portfolio, portfolio holdings, so yeah,
0: yeah. He yeah.
1: thinks, you know, eventually... Although Asia isn't a market that always runs on fundamentals, it's very much sentiment-driven. Over the long term, fundamentals hold out, and fundamentals hold out more in volatile markets. And if that's what we're expecting, then it should should hold up quite well.
0: Okay. Um, Rachel, um, what do you think of Asian equities at the moment, and are they likely to do well going ahead?
2: I think, as Taha has alluded to, Asian equities is really a very broad term. So within that, you'd have economies such as Vietnam, which is still very developing and very closed. You'd also have China, which is developing, but arguably on the way to becoming more developed. And then you'd have very developed, more stable economies like Japan. So I think if you're investing in Asian equities, you need to have a look at, where you are investing within the underlying funds I think broadly when people talk about Asian equities they're really mainly referring to China so looking at us at the moment I think Chinese equities have come down a huge amount largely due to the trade war but I think they are reaching a point where they are starting to look very attractive so we look at the back end of last year Developed markets came down on average about 10%. The Chinese market was down more than 30%. And yes, it was right that it came down. There were many risks um, that people were worried about. But I think now it has come down to such an extent that those equities are starting to look attractively valued.
0: On that note... Is it a good idea to allocate to them at the moment then?
2: Clearly they are very volatile. They are very up and down. But if you are an investor who can handle that, if that's not going to worry you too much, and if you are looking for growth in your portfolio, then yes, I think emerging markets, Asian equities and particularly China are a good area to allocate to. So... Are there any funds you'd suggest for getting exposure to Asian growth? So, if you want specifically China, I'd probably look at the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust. So, as the name suggests, that's purely invested in China. It does have quite a high technology weighting, but I think if you are a growth investor, then that is a good space to be. If you want a more general Asian fund, you could look at the Stewart Investors Asia Pacific Leaders. So, that one has been a lot more stable. It focuses on much larger companies. It doesn't have any exposure to China, but it focuses focuses on quite a mix of developed and emerging markets. So it's got some Singapore, it's got some Hong Kong. It also has a large amount of India. So it's a very a very broad Asian equity fund.
0: Okay. Now um I think as Taha mentioned, Aberdeen, they run Asian growth funds, but they also run an Asian equity income fund. So do you think Asian equities are a good idea
2: for income or are they more of a growth play? I think for some investors, they certainly are good for income. So any income investor I think should be diversifying as much as possible. Often we see that a lot of income investors will focus quite heavily on the UK because that is a market that tends to pay quite high rates of dividends. Uh, But I think it is important to be diversified and I think Asia is definitely worth looking at there are many stocks within Asian economies that do play quite do pay quite good dividends particularly the financial sector I think that is a good space to be but clearly it is quite risky so it's not for everyone.
0: Okay and and what are those risks Um,
2: and um, how do they compare to UK equity income risks? Probably the main risk for an income investor is the currency so for example the Chinese currency has come down hugely over the last few months and if you've got a dividend that's being declared In a foreign currency that's fallen, then that's going to be worth less when it's translated back into sterling. So, for me, that is one of the key risks.
0: For investors who can tolerate that kind of risk, are there any Asian equity income funds that you'd um, suggest?
2: So, one that we like that has got a very good long term track record is the Prusik Asian Equity Income Fund. So, that has a yield of about 3.5%. And because it is investing in very large, relatively stable companies, it also hasn't experienced a huge amount of volatility. So, that's one that I would definitely have a look at.
0: Thank you, Rachel. Some really helpful points there. And see has full interview with Hugh Young in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website. Now, many investors are familiar with Asian equities, as we've just been talking about, and also emerging markets. But if you're seeking high growth and have a high risk appetite, there's another area you could consider frontier markets. Now,
2: Rachel, what exactly are frontier markets? So these are markets that are so developing that they are not yet large enough or developed enough to be considered developing. So the stage before that is called frontier markets.
0: Okay, sort of emerging, emerging
2: markets. Exactly, emerging, yeah. emerging yeah. markets, emerging squares.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously they're not as developed as emerging markets, but I suppose if you go to weigh up uh, you know, what they're like relative to emerging markets or developed markets, how you know what would be the main points there?
2: So I think there are definitely pros and cons here. Clearly, there is a risk because these economies are very, very developing. Um, Some of them have quite poor corporate governance. Some of them have very inaccessible stock exchanges, and it might be quite difficult to sell shares once you have them. But on the other hand, they are a very good diversifier because they tend to move in quite different ways to developed and even emerging economies. I'd also say that another good thing is that most governments and most other countries have been quite reluctant to lend to these frontier markets and as a result of that most of them have very low levels of debt which is definitely another advantage. I
0: suppose if you're an investor with the appropriate risk appetite looking for some growth are they a good area to consider at the moment?
2: I think so they have come down recently largely because of sentiment so they have come down along with other global markets I don't think the fundamentals of those economies have really changed and in fact arguably they have improved. Uh, So for example, Vietnam is a major exporter, that would be considered to be a frontier market. Because of this, manufacturers have moved their manufacturing to Vietnam. So Vietnam is actually a beneficiary of this trade war. And that's an economy that I think is doing well at the moment. And that would probably be a constituent of many of these frontier funds. You mentioned some um,
0: generic risks to frontier markets. Are there any particular current risks that you should be
2: very aware of if you're thinking of um, buying into one of these funds at the moment? I think you need to be careful in terms of how you invest. Um, So as I said earlier, Mm -hmm. some of the stocks within these markets are quite illiquid and it might be quite difficult to sell these stocks. So if you invest via an open-ended fund and you want to sell your position, it might be quite difficult for the fund manager to sell the underlying shares. So I would recommend accessing frontier markets via an investment trust. In my view, that's a much safer way to do it.
0: Okay, so are there any particular investment trusts that you would suggest?
2: So we're in particular like the BlackRock Frontiers Investment Trust. Reasonable track record, very strong management team. It's very diversified in terms of the sectors that it looks at. And also, as an extra plus, it has a reasonable yield of over 3%. Thank you, Rachel.
0: Some really helpful suggestions. And see this week's big theme for more on frontier markets and funds with which to access them. As well as making a profit... An increasing number of investors want their money invested in assets that don't damage the environment or harm people and animals. There are many funds which purport to give investors such exposure, sometimes, but not always, referred to as ethical funds. But the problem is, there is no set definition of what such a fund is, no defined criteria that it has to meet, or even an agreed generic name by which to refer to these kinds of funds – Taha, you've been looking at this. What problems does this throw up for investors?
1: Oh uh, well, the, the first one is, as you alluded to in, in your opening, uh, in your opening bit, there are um, several terms which investors might come across on these kind of funds, and I'm just going to rattle through some mm, of
0: them. Sometimes. I think a lot of people might generically refer to them as ethical uh, funds, absolutely, but, yeah, but they're not necessarily always. No, they, yeah, they could be doing something that's so entirely a different. Yeah. To, well, ethics, mm. or however you would even mm. define
1: ethics. So you have got things like responsible, ethical, ESG, uh, climate, sustainable. SRI, which is actually a combination of this. Course.
0: Yeah, a, social, social, responsible investing. investing yeah. um,
1: and the, the, the main problem is this is the, the, these these words only make sense to people who work in the marketing department mm. of asset managers. Uh, they don't make sense to, to everyday investors or quite frankly anyone who works in the industry mm. apart unless you're in, uh, an asset manager. The key thing is, and this is what has become more apparent over time, is that investors do want these kind of funds. It is particularly younger investors, but they all know that that is an increasing cohort and it, it does matter. They want funds that account for their beliefs and their morals, and that are doing the right things and doing good things, as well as making a financial uh, return. But as it stands, no one knows what these words means. No one knows what the difference between ethical and responsible is, or climate and environment, or eth- you know, ES- ESG screens. Uh, you know, shouldn't all companies have good governance? Why are there Why are there companies, that are funds that are specifically focusing on this? And it's impossible to tell, at a basic level, what these funds do. So what that means is that when you're looking for a fund, you can't, you don't know what it does, you don't know how it does it, and you don't know how it compares to anything else. And I think the, the comparison is the main thing. It's impossible to compare. It's very difficult to find the best ESG fund because ESG means so many different things to to so many different people. So you can't go like for like. Um, as it stands, even if you're if you're an investor that doesn't want to account for this, it's almost even difficult to find. Like come to figure out which ones are vanilla funds and which ones might be ESG. There's there's no clear labeling, there's no clear definitions, and it's just a bit of a model for anyone who either is or isn't interested in this in this kind of investing.
0: Good news is, um, as you reported in this week's issue, there may be some help on the way for um, investors interested in ethical or responsible whatever funds. Um, What is this help?
1: It's a starting point. It's the the investment association, which is the trade body for all asset managers. And what it wants to do is it wants to create stricter definitions for the main terms that I just talked about. Um, and it also wants to have fund labels. Now, for me, this is possibly the most important thing they want to do, um, because fund labels will make it a lot clearer to investors um, if a fund is aligned to a non-financial metric like an ESG screen or climate investing or impact investing and things like that. And as I, as I say, that matters for both the t- both types of investors that either want to buy this fund, or those that don't. Um, there will also be. What
0: do you mean by fund labels?
1: So there will be a, a clearer sign if a fund, let's say, a fund takes an ESG screen, which means mm-hmm. it, it screens out companies that don't meet uh, certain criteria for either uh, environmental records, or governance records, or social impact. Um, That will be clearly labelled on the fund to say this is an ESG ESG screen fund. An
0: ESG means, yeah. Yeah, and this is what ESG means. Uh,
1: But on top of this, and again, this is also a very good step, um, there'll be better disclosure from the fund to its investors about what it does and how it does it. Now, this is the main thing because, as I I mentioned earlier, kind of, you know, an ethical fund, for example, ethics is a very, very subjective and relative term. Um, There's no, you can't define what someone's ethics are in in a strict grid or any kind of metric. But if funds have better disclosure about how they're picking stocks and what they define as ethics, then investors can make sure that they're buying, buying the right fund that is aligned to them.
0: Okay. Um, will a solution be effective in helping investors to identify and compare ethical funds?
1: Uh, I suppose it's wait and see. It's baby steps. It's definitely a start. Um, as I say, everything is very sub- subjective, so any clarity at this point. Point in time is is a good thing, I suppose um, there are some suggestions that these funds should just have a different sector entirely. Um, maybe that could work it 's hard to say um, the thing is that the financial performance of these funds is still very important. And being able to compare them against funds that don't take that screen is also very important. So, though taking them out of the the main sectors and putting them in their own sector, I, I'm not entirely sure that would solve. And the they're
0: problem. quite different to each other, aren't they? They, they so are. I mean, exactly. you're not going to compare a UK ethical fund to a global ethical fund, no. to a European fund, to an ethical bond fund, are you? You would have, I mean, the, you'd yeah. have the
1: problem we have with the total yeah. absolute return sector, mm. which is all the funds I are mean, so different that you can't compare yeah. them to one another. Yeah. Uh, and I that, that think it makes really sense
0: need. to keep them in.
1: Yeah, the, without, they're, they're the still sectors, doing the same yeah. things. Yeah, so yeah it's, uh, UK
0: funds of UK funds sort of thing, yeah.
1: The main thing is that it could mm. just be a, a kind of a kick up the uh, proverbial to the marketing departments to, to, that they should be better at doing what they're meant to be doing, which is explaining what their products do. And I suppose if it does that, then that is a good start.
0: Okay. Rachel, do you think ethical funds are labelled clearly enough, or should there be more formal
2: definitions of what they are and criteria they should meet? Well, I think, as you said, I completely agree. The main issue is that the word ethical is so subjective. So, for example, a lot of our clients would say, I don't want to invest in Royal Dutch Shell because it's producing fossil fuels it's polluting when you burn oil it's polluting the environment whereas many others would say I can see that Royal Dutch Shell is moving more towards gas which is a cleaner burn and also they're really expanding into renewables so I'd see Royal Dutch Shell as a very ethical company so very subjective I don't think we're going to find one one size fits all ethical um, definition Um, but I do think funds could clearly label how they themselves would define ethical And I think following that, you've also got the issue of how you actually put an ethical fund together. So if you're starting a fund, do you start with no stocks and do you actively look for companies that you believe are ethical and then build a fund that way? Or do you do the opposite and start with all stocks within your particular universe and just take out the ones that you believe are unethical? So many, many different ways of doing it. And I just think some clarity about how different fund providers are approaching it would be very helpful.
0: Okay. Now, it could be some time before the Investment Association implements its proposals to try and help people. So what can investors do in the meantime to try and identify appropriate ethical investments for themselves?
2: I would have a look at the small print of these funds and see if they do give some of a definition of how they are picking what ethical investors investments are. If you can't find that, I would encourage you to get in touch with the investor relations team for that fund and see if they can give you some more information. And if you still can't get what you need, then I would simply have a look at other funds
0: okay thank you rachel some really helpful tips that brings us to the end of today's show but you can read more on Asian equity income frontier markets and ethical investing in this week's investors chronicle of a website thank you for listening and have a good weekend